Uh, I grew up in a pastor's family, and I'm, I'm a pastor myself, so Easter has always been a pretty big uh, holiday for me throughout my life, and it's been one that I've always really enjoyed. So I can always remember as a kid just really reveling in the idea of Easter and all the, the traditions that came with it. But also, as I got into ministry, there was just even an excitement and exuberance that I had for Easter as well. The, the church that we served at um, before we moved here to start Storyline, um, it just, I, I think that went to a new height and a new level. There's always just this beautiful excitement. It was the first time that we experienced working through movements of like the Christian calendar. What I mean by that is like doing uh, Ash Wednesday and Good Friday and then celebrating all the climax up to Easter. And we, did, we practiced that and just stirred my soul as we worked through the Christian calendar. And then Easter came and there was just incredible music. Here it was like the experience of walking into that church. You would walk in and there was an art exhibit that usually had a, an exhibit that was based off of the resurrection. And so that you would have these beautiful pieces of artwork that were trying to place before us this hope of the resurrection as you walk into the building. And then as you go into the auditorium, we had an incredible music team and they would play this song, He's Alive by Dolly Parton. You know what I'm talking about? So they would play this song and this the girl that would sing this song, her vocals were just insane. Like she would just belt out this song. And then the sermon always had a good combination of conviction and joy that were supposed to be found in the resurrection. And so I just always found myself looking forward to Easter. But Easter of 2012 just hit me different. All right. Um, in December of 2011, there was a malignant tumor that was found in my body. Um, and until that moment, I looked at death and the afterlife more kind of like retirement, you know? It's something that you would think about and plan for, but later, you know? That's kind of how I, my mentality was. But overnight, that had to change for me. Um, naturally, I began to think more about life after death, and these thoughts began to consume my mind, as probably it would you if you were having to wrestle with what I was going through. And what I found as I was wrestling with these thoughts of life after death is that I had like this gospel problem, all right? Here's what I mean. So there's a lot of ways that you can try to explain the gospel. Um, there's one way, God, Christ, man, response that you explain it, just looking at who God is, who we are, um, our need for him, our sin problem, and then our response for what Jesus has done for us. Another way of putting that would be creation, fall, reconciliation, and consummation. And here's what that basically means. Like God created this world. He created us for life with him under his rule. We rejected that. And so there was a fall that we looked at in Genesis chapter 3 where sin entered into our world. And we all deal with this sin problem. But through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he's brought reconciliation reconciliation and that broken relationship that we have with God. Um, but here's what I would feel is like that's where it would stop for me, all right? The gospel problem I had is that this whole idea of the gospel would stop at this reconciliation, and I didn't move to this consummation idea. So what God has been doing since the beginning of time, since creation happened and then 
sin entered into this world is there's this redemptive story that he's teasing out throughout human history. And the end goal is that we dwell with God in this perfect place and in perfect bodies. But for me, it just stopped at this idea of reconciliation. Anybody like kind of feel that with me? A little bit? Okay. Um, so that's where I was. It, but that Easter, after this cancer scare that I had, thankfully it was caught early. Uh, I didn't have to go through any treatment, but there was like all these doctor's visits and for months it was like, I don't know if it's in my body. I don't know if it's out of my body. So after this cancer scare, that Easter, the wonder of the gospel just hit me differently because I wrestled with this idea of life after death. And the passage that we're looking at tonight, I believe Paul's trying to advocate for us to see this full scope of the gospel. All right? So this idea that God has been working in human history to redeem us, not just for this reconciliation that happens, but then for us to live with him for eternity. All right? And so here's where I'm kind of getting this, all right? So as uh, Maddie read the passage for us, you could look at this and think that Paul is almost like the angry, uh, irritable, get off the, my lawn kind of guy, right? So he works through a couple of questions and what does he say right after? You fool, right? It's like, dang, Paul, calm down. Like, let's, let's chill pill a little bit. Um, but here's like the questions that he raises for us. He says, how are the dead raised? And what kind of body will they have when they come? That's in verse 35. And the reason that Paul has a strong response to these is because they're not genuine questions, but they're actually mocking questions. All right, so the thought of that day and time was that the body was sort of like wet clothes. They were just inhibiting, right? So they were like, clean, the body was just clingy to the soul. It was restricting. It was uncomfortable. And the, the best thing that you could experience was freedom from the physical, freedom from the body. And Paul has such a strong response to this because he believes the Corinthians and everyone else that's dealing with this thought that life is better apart from the physical than it is in the physical is missing the point. They've lost the big picture of what God is doing through the story of redemption. And we see this teased out through Paul in this particular passage in three ways. And this is what I want us to look at tonight. We're going to break through it. Uh, I, here's my goal is I want to place kind of this vision that I believe Paul lives by before us, and then I want to end by kind of trying to apply it and wrestle with what does it look like for us to live in this tension today. So here's the three things that I think Paul is trying to place before us. First is you're made to bodily dwell with God. Second, you need a spiritual body to do this. And then third, Jesus is the one who gives you that body. He's the one that gives it to you, all right? So what we need to do is we need to work through these because they kind of build off of each other as Paul works through his argument. And like I said, we'll end by trying to wrestle with some application on it. So the first thing that we see is that you are made to bodily dwell with God. So here's what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to wake them up. It's like they are in the slumber or it's like they've just woken up from asleep and you're not fully awake, Right? Paul's trying to wake them up, one, to the possibility that the, bod the bodily resurrection can and will happen, but also the wonder of it, all right? So look with me at the possibility of it first. We see this in verses 36 through 40. 
So Paul takes that question, how are the dead raised? And he essentially says, like, what do you mean? And here's how he kind of breaks it down, all right? So verse 36, he says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you're not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain, but God gives it a body as he wants, and to each of the seeds its own body. So essentially Paul's saying like, look, you know how a seed works. You have an example of what this bodily resurrection looks like before you. You know how a seed works. You plant a seed in the ground, and then out of that death sprouts new life. So he says the bodily resurrection is very similar to this idea of placing a seed in the ground and then seeing the plant shoot out of the soil. Our present bodies, they go into the ground and they're dead. And at the bodily resurrection, we see a new life. And just as the seed is of similar substance, it's not the same, but it's similar of substance to the plant that would sprout out of it. So it is with our bodily resurrection. We experience uh, the body that is placed into the ground is raised bodily, but you have this new lived experience in this bodily resurrection that happens. So Paul's like using this analogy of present day and saying like, you get this, you see it in the present day right before you. Again, he touches the idea of the possibility of the bodily resurrection by wrestling with that second question that he says in verse 35. So essentially, Paul says, what do you mean? What kind of body will they have when they come? And we see this in verses 39 through 40a. Not all flesh is the same flesh. There's one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. And there are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. So Paul's essentially saying like, hey, just look around you. What do you mean, like, what kind of body are they going to have? Look around you. There's all these different types of bodies that are here in this world already. You have a body for a human. You have a body for a bird. You have a body for a fish. So look, God's not restricted in creativity or ability to bring about a resurrected body because you already see the creativity and his ability that's already around you. So what do you mean, like, what kind of body are they going to have? Just look around you. You can already see that there's the ability and the capability and the creativity of God to do this. And so the conclusion is, of course, bodily dwelling with God is possible, but then we see him move in verses 40 and 41 to consider the wonder of it. All right, so here's what he says. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different than that of the earthly ones. There's a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another star in splendor. So not only is bodily resurrection possible, Paul's placing before us here, but he's saying there's also a wonder to it, all right? So here's the Corinthian problem with the idea and their buy into this idea that life is better apart from a physical body than it is the meeting of soul and body, embodied souls. He says, you miss the mark. You miss the splendor that takes place between the two. You're only... They viewed eternal life in light of the present life. You see what I'm saying? So 
He says, you can't do this. And here's the illustration that he uses. It's, he says, it's like comparing the star and the moon or the moon and the sun. All of them possess splendor, all right? So he says, like, you can look at a star and it differs in splendor from another star. So you can see that within the body, this earthly body, that there's splendor. If we think back to creation, we see that God created us in the Imago Dei, right? We are created in his image, which means means that our bodies that he's given us now, they have splendor, they have significance, they have worth, they have value. You look at our earthly bodies and it's, he's not saying that it's lacking splendor. He says it's just a different type of experience of it. He says, but if you try to place the two like you would a star and the moon, if you place a star before a moon, the moon splendor outdoes it. Paul, at this point in time, whenever they're looking at the sky, what does the moon do? It's much larger and brighter than what the star is. He says, if you compare the two, the moon is going to outdo it. The same way if you try to compare the moon with the sun, the sun is going to be much brighter. The splendor of the sun is going to be much greater than what you see with the moon. Paul's saying the same thing with the bodily resurrection. If you look at the earthly body, it has splendor. It has significance, worth, value. But if you try to compare it with the resurrection body, the resurrection body completely outdoes it. And so what Paul essentially is trying to do for them is say like, hey, you don't want to compare the two and look at, at the eternal resurrected body just through their lens of what we see with the earthly body. What you have to do is you have to expect and open up your horizon of your mind to the wonder of what what God can actually do. What, they're, what these Corinthians were struggling with was only seeing life after Genesis 3 rather than seeing life before Genesis 3. Because what is characterized about life before Genesis chapter 3 is not restriction that happens with the human body, but possibility. You know what I'm talking about? Like, if you look at Genesis chapter 1 through 3, there's this amazement and this wonder that you get to live with God here on earth. What we see in Genesis chapter 3 before the fall is that God would come and walk with Adam and Eve in the garden on a daily basis. That God would come and he would dwell with man bodily. And as this dwelling took place, there was only possibility for this garden to be expanded across the face of the earth. And so it wasn't restriction, it was only possibility. And what we see in Revelation chapter 21, when the new heavens and the new earth are coming down, is that there's an actual different characterization that happens here. So what you have in Genesis 1 through 3 is characterized by possibility. There's not restriction. There's only what could be before you. But what you see in Revelation 21 is perfection of that. So it's not just this opportunity and possibility that's out there. You actually see all of it fully realized. All right, so here's what the image of this is for us. Try to, like, man, try to think of this. Try to step into it. Have your the blinders off of your eyes as much as you can to try to just, just look and think and gaze at what the image is of Revelation 21, all right? So here's, here's what we find. You see the new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven and it's compared to that of a jasper stone. A jasper stone is like this really deep, dark red stone, all right? And so here's how magnificent 
in the splendor. Splendor means glorious condition here. Here's the glorious condition of this new Jerusalem, that that jasper, dense red rock, it says that it's clear as crystal. All right, you can't find that here in this world. You can't find a jasper rock that's as clear as crystal. Same thing is said about the roads and the streets of this city, that they are made of pure gold. Look, transparent as glass. Anybody ever seen anything that's gold? I I used to run track. Um, I have only just a few (laughs) because I ran with some really fast guys of like gold medals. I can tell you what, it's not clear, right? It's not clear like glass. You can't look through this bad boy and see through it. But what what you see of this image of this heaven that's coming down to earth is that there is gold streets that are as transparent as glass. Our senses can't even make sense of this, right? Beyond this, there's no sun or moon because God's glory, his splendor, the glorious condition, the word that Paul uses here in this verse, illuminates the new heavens and the new earth. So there's no sun You have rock and you have material that's transparent that you can't find in the face of this world. There's no sun or moon because God's glory is shining forth. The idea here is that it literally gives life. Just as we need the sun for life here in this world, there is no sun in this new Jerusalem, this new heavens, this new earth, because God's glory is shining so bright and shining so forth that it's actually what gives life to all in this new world. And then what we see is that the nations are before him. So you have the nations that live bodily with God in this place that has clear jasper, this transparent gold, this world without a sun because God's glory shines so bright and shines so forth that it actually gives life to all that are in this world. There's no need for a sun anymore because God is there. And then you have people, the nations that are dwelling bodily with God. This is the image that Paul is trying to place before us here as he's talking about this idea of the gospel that he wants these Corinthians to grasp that it doesn't stop with reconciliation. It ends with consummation, that God dwells bodily here with us. Now, this is something that every single one of us have deep down aches and desires for, but here's the problem, is that we have to think about this body that we bear and wrestle with, can we stand before this God in the eternity that he's bringing to this world? And we get the answer in verses 42 through 44. What we see here is that we need a spiritual body. This body that we bear now is not one that can withstand the glory that is to come. So verses 42 through 44 say this. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also 
a spiritual body. So Paul compares both the earthly body and the heavenly body here. So he, he begins with this vision that there's this unique splendor that the heavenly body has. And then he moves to the contrast of what the difference is between the earthly body and the heavenly body. So there are numerous examples throughout the scriptures of where the human experiences the divine, right? There's plenty of times where we see throughout just the whole grand narrative of the Bible that God appears to humans in real life, in real time. Now, what's the consistent response whenever that happens? It's always fear. It is always life-gripping fear, all right? So Moses, as he approaches um, the burning bush, what is it said about him? He hides his face. He's terrified of what he sees. What happens with the Israelites is they've stepped out of Egypt and are at Mount Sinai and they see the cloud that consumes Mount Sinai. What is their response? They are fearful because they believe if they are to go to that mountain that they will be consumed. What happens throughout the birth narrative of Jesus as the angels are showing up and appearing to human beings, it's constantly the angel's response, do not be afraid, right? The reason for this, the reason this is always the response is fear is because the imperfect cannot dwell with the perfect. And that's what Paul's trying to help us experience here in verses 42 through 44. He has this series of comparisons between the earthly body and the heavenly body. So I have a chart up here that you can look at with me. Just look at the comparisons, all right? So the earthly body sown in corruption. This is talking about decay, that we have the seeds of disease and death that are inside of us. But as we look at that Revelation 21 picture, you see in verse four there that there's no more tears or no more pain. There's no more sin. There's no more death. There's incorruption that happens with this resurrected body. You have this body that's sown in dishonor. There's not anything more dishonorable than lowering a dead body into the ground. But what we see with the resurrected body is that it's raised in glory, that it will never see the six feet under ever again. What you see sown in weakness. We all need to go to sleep. It's been said that you spend a third of your life asleep so that your body can get the power that it needs to live for the very next day. But what you see here is that you're resurrected and raised in power. And then lastly, sown a natural body and then raised a spiritual body. Just kind of like a massive con like synopsis of all that's been said here. You're born with a natural body, but you're gonna need a spiritual body. This isn't a non-physical body. This is a body that is empowered and is constantly run by the power of the Holy Spirit. All right, that's what is being said here. So look, I had to learn this the hard way. So this scare that I had with cancer, um, I was just a few, like Cherish and I were still in our early years of marriage and leading up to our wedding, I had a best friend that was basically a physical trainer, all right? And so I had this operation of looking good on the honeymoon night that he put me through, right? And so I went and I, I lifted weights for like two hours a day leading up to our wedding. I was in the best physical condition that I have ever been in my whole entire life. This guy, he had abs that would like pop through his shirt, right? I wasn't there yet, but he got me to the best closest place that I could ever be there. And as I was in this best shape of my life, look, death was still a threat to me. 
I still had a malignant tumor that grew in my body. It had to be eradicated. There was another pastor, Matt Chandler, who also had the same experience. And here's what he says after his experience with a wrestle with cancer as well as he was dealing with this idea of the afterlife. He came to this conclusion. Even if Christ returns before we physically die, we're still going to need a replacement of this perishable body. Why? Because the imperfect cannot dwell with the perfect. You need a spiritual body. Even if Jesus comes back before you taste death, you still need a resurrected body because this body, no matter how much time and attention that you give to it, cannot dwell with God for eternity. You need a resurrected body. And so Paul tells us how we get this body in verses 45 through 49. Here's what he says. So it is written, this first man, Adam, became a living being. I I messed up with the screen, so just listen to me, all right? So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from Adam. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have been born, the, just as we have born the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. So what in the world is Paul doing here, right? Paul's Paul moves from the differences of the earthly body and the resurrected body to the first people that bore them, all right? So Adam is the first man. He's the man of dust, and we bear his image now, right? This is why we practice, uh, uh, this is why we practice Ash Wednesday. From dust you are made to dust you will return. Jesus is this last Adam, that Paul characterizes here in these verses. We will bear his image, which is the resurrection, when he comes again. All right, so think with me about this, all right? Imagine you were to, be, to meet both of these significant figures in person, all right? Imagine this. Like, these are just two figures that the scriptures constantly place before us the contrast between them, there's no, like, you, you could argue that there are no greater uh, examples or significant figures in the Bible than these two, all right? So imagine you meet this Adam that has bore your body, all right? As you meet him and as you have a conversation with him, what you find quickly is that he's walked in your shoes, right? Like he's done everything in this life and he's experienced everything in this life that you could possibly ever experience. And so since he lived so long, right, many more years than what we're going to live in this world. And since he experienced like life before sin and then life after sin, it's likely that he could give us a lot of really good counsel, right? Like Adam could give us tons of great advice, If we needed somebody that would come and talk to you about the struggles in this life, Adam would be our guy. But not only could he give us great counsel, he could also empathize with us, right? He's done and experienced all the struggles that you and I have possibly ever experienced or encountered in this world. If there's any person that you're looking for counsel or empathy, it's likely Adam that we could go to because he could sympathize with us. He's basically looking and say, like, look, the problem that you're in is is because of me. 
There's no greater empathy than you can experience with anybody else that's ever walked this earth outside of Jesus. But here's the problem with Adam, is that even though he can give you great counsel and he can empathize with you in, few, in ways that few other people could ever do, he can't do anything about it. He can't do anything about it. But Jesus is different. Jesus is different. Jesus wore our earthly body and then now wears the heavenly body. Which, here's what that means. Jesus can empathize with our earthly troubles, but he can also do something about it. That's what the difference is between Adam and Jesus. Jesus also can look at you and give you great counsel. He can also give you great empathy because he bore our earthly bodies. But the beauty about this Jesus is that he wears present tense, the resurrected body. So here's what our world loves. Our world loves great counselors, right? Our world loves great counselors. It's like, I mean, this is a huge thing. I, I think this is a great mark of the present like stage that we're at right now is there's a lot more vulnerability, a lot more authenticity and transparency that's willing to seek help for what we experience in these earthly bodies. We seek out great counselors. We love great counselors. Here's the problem with this world, though, is we're still in search of a great physician. We don't have an answer for cancer. We don't have an answer for Alzheimer's. We don't have an answer for all these things that plague our earthly bodies here and now. We have great medicine, common grace that's been given to us that helps with these issues, but we don't have the final answer. In Jesus, we get both. We get both great counselor and the great physician. Because here's what Paul tells us in Philippians 3.21 about what happens when this Jesus comes back. I don't have this on the screen, so just listen to me read it aloud for us. Verse 21 of chapter 3. He'll transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Essentially, Jesus will take your humble condition and give you his resurrected body because he took your earthly body, died in your place, and then experienced Easter where he was resurrected from the grave, triumphing over Satan, sin, and death. And because of all of this, Jesus can give you his resurrected body when he comes back again. Here's what Irenaeus has to say about this ancient forefather. He says, Our Lord Jesus Christ, who did through his transcendent love, became what we are, that he might bring us to be even what he is himself. Look, it's only through Jesus that our greatest issues and problems in this world can be answered, that he is the great physician that can do something about your broken body that nobody else in this world can possibly do. And he gives it to us at his grace. He gives it to you not because you have caught his eye but because he has seen that you are incapable of doing anything about your broken state. And out of his kindness and his mercy, left his rightful place in heaven, put on human flesh so he could deal with your greatest problem so that whenever he was resurrected from the grave, even though we may 
taste death, death in this life, when he comes back again, he will give us the very thing that we need in order to dwell with him bodily. That's a resurrected body. And there's nobody else that you can go to except for this Jesus. There's nobody else that has tasted death, death and then experienced new life. Not eternal. The only people that ever experienced it in this life were the ones that tasted it at Jesus' hand. You have Lazarus that was raised from the grave, but whenever Lazarus was raised from the grave, look, he's not here anymore. He's dead now. The only person that has stayed alive is this Jesus because he received the resurrected body, and the only person that you can turn to for this resurrected body is Jesus himself, all right? So we, we, let's get to some application here, all right? So this is a big vision, right? that we get to bodily dwell with God, that we are with the living God in a perfect world and perfect bodies. This body cannot live in, a, in the state of perfection because it, it's, it's uh, is sown in imperfection, right? And the only person that can give us the body that we need to live with God forever is this Jesus. Now, here's the beauty of what we live in. Um, it's we call it the already but not yet, all right? So we live in this state where we get to experience and taste this resurrection here and now, but we also look forward to the day when we experience it in full. And so what we see in this, um, as we look at this whole struggle that we see in this passage, is that Paul, he's trying to place before these Corinthians, as well as us, this vision because he wants us to live that already here while we live in light of the yet to come, all right? And so Paul says the reason that these Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 34, the reason that they're still struggling with sin is because they have lost this sense of wonder of what is yet to come, all right? Here's what he says in 34. Come to your senses and stop sinning. This is right after he's worked through just the hope of the resurrection. Come to your senses and stop sinning, for some people are ignorant about God, and I say this to your shame. These Corinthians, they have bought into the voice of the age that it's better for us to live life apart from the body than it is to live in embodied souls here in this world. And as they do this, they lose a sense of wonder, and they live with a sense of apathy, and here's what I want us to wrestle with as we think about application is a lot of us live with apathy here in this life here and now too, don't we? And a lot of the reason that we live with apathy is because we have lost this sense of wonder. Here's how I think this plays out for us. So a lot of us, as we walk through this world and we, we live in light of the resurrection, we believe that Jesus really truly did live, die, and was raised again. We've trusted in him for our forgiveness of sins, but our, our idea has stopped at this idea of reconciliation when it comes to the gospel. And we don't live in light of the consummation that's to come when Jesus comes back and he makes all things new. And so we don't live with a sense of gratitude. We live with this idea of reconciliation and we're thankful for what God has done, but it doesn't permeate our life in the way that we live. And so we live indifferent to God's redemptive work. Here's what one um, Christian scholar says, apathy is not the hostility of a shaking fist, but of a gaping yawn. That's how a lot of us live this life. In light of the resurrection, we live with just kind of this gaping yawn. We're not 
We're not living with this sense of wonder and thankfulness for what God has done for us because we stop at the, the idea of reconciliation and we don't live in light of this idea of the consummation that we're going to bodily dwell with God forever. We also don't live with standards, meaning we settle for sin. This deep ache that we have in our soul for the eternal, we look to the present in order to fix that ache. So C.S. Lewis kind of talks about that we have this desire for things of eternity, um, but we try to fix it with the temporal. And so here's a couple ways that he works through how we do this. We long for the full experience of love. In, in the presence of God, you will live and experience the full full life of love that you could ever imagine, the thing that you deeply ache for in this life, but yet we try to find the fix for it in this life, and so we live for the thrill of a new relationship. When you get into a relationship, the first days are always exciting, right? It's like always kind of stirs your soul. There's like the emotions of that new relationship. They just kind of drive you day to day. But as time wears on, that sense of thrill wears off. And so you dump that person and you go to the next person looking for that sense of thrill and hope. That's an ache for eternity. You ache for the full experience of love that only heaven can bring to you in this life. We also do this by trying to find the final destination of heaven. And so some of us, we love going and we love traveling. We love traveling to places, new places that we've never experienced and seeing sights and wonders that you can't see here in the United States. And so we're constantly booking trip after trip after trip. And what C.S. Lewis says is part of what is happening there is that you're trying to find the experience of the final destination of heaven, the new wonders of the new heavens and the new earth, but you can't fully experience it in this life. And so you're constantly have to, having to open up your pocketbook and pay for another trip and go to a place that you haven't been because you're trying to find this final destination that your soul so deeply aches for but can't fully realize here in this world. And so these are good things that we make ultimate things, which is what we characterize as what sin often is in this life, that we're looking for a satisfaction in earthly things, temporal things, new relationships, traveling. This is what C.S. Lewis is trying to place before you. We, we don't have standards. We settle for sin, for the deep ache that we have in our souls for eternity. So this is, again, apathy. And then the last one is that we don't live with a sense of urgency. Paul says at the end of verse 34, for some people are ignorant about God, and I say this to your shame. This means that there's no urgency to us in taking this great news of the good news of the gospel that you will bodily dwell with the living God in a perfect world where there's no more sin, no more pain, no more death, perfectly reconciled relationships with those that will be in this room and those that have passed away before us, as well as the almighty, righteous God. You get to be with him forever. This is the place that we long for, but yet we live with an apathy and we don't share this good news with people that are going to spend an eternity separated from this God. We don't live with a sense of urgency, but we live with a sense of apathy. And so sharing the good news of Jesus feels like a burden and something that we don't want to do rather than finding great courage and joy in going and sharing this good news. And so what 
what does Paul place before us and what does it look like to live differently? Well, you see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, from now on, then we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective, even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. What Paul places before the Corinthians as well as us is that you live as a new creation. Here's the beauty of what God does in the present tense that allows us to live in this resurrected life is he gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us the Holy Spirit that allows us to see triumph over sin and hardship and difficulties in this life. It's not fully perfect yet, but we do see victory as we walk with Jesus in this life and hand with his people here in this world. And so I, had a, a, I heard a story of a pastor that he, I think he just beautifully picked, like gives us a picture of what this looks like here in this day and life here and now. So um, this pastor is Brian Loritz. He got the story from somebody else. He's taking credit for it. I don't remember who the other guy was. So Brian, you get it. Um, so he talks about this guy that was headed to a wedding. And so he's all dressed up, right? He's got a suit on, and he's driving through like the backwoods of West Virginia, all right? And so he's driving through the backwoods of West Virginia, pretty poverty-stricken place, and he's driving in his car, and he needs gas. And so he's on these back roads. He has no idea where he is. He's just living by his phone that's telling him his directions of where to go, and he stops at this gas station. As he stops at this gas station, he gets out of his car, and all eyes immediately go towards him, Right? So it's a poverty-stricken place. I mean, you're talking about people that, the way that he shares this story, like people that are just walking around without shoes on. Some have pants on. Um, some don't have shirts on. Um, you can take that for what it is. And as he's like at this gas station, he walks in and he's going to pay. You have to pay before you get the gas. They don't even have like the new technology that you can just like insert your card and get the gas. He has to go in and he has to pay for this gas. And so as he goes in, he has to have a conversation with the person that's behind the counter. And as he goes up, the person just looks at him bewildered. And essentially like asks in like a short summation, like, what are you doing here? Why are you dressed like that? And this pastor, in this moment, responds back to this person behind the counter. He says, I'm not dressed for where I am. I'm dressed for where I'm going. And Paul is essentially, when he says in 2 Corinthians 5, that we are a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. He says, you, look, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you now, which means that you can view this world with a different perspective. That you can, lit, you can dress for where you're going and live that way here and now, but you are ultimately looking towards where you're going. It has captured your imagination. It has captured your wonder. He says, this is what it looks like to live in light of the resurrection here and now. That you have this Holy Spirit, that you're working with this Spirit to Put to death the sin that is in your life so that you can live in light of the relationship that Christ has won for you through his life, death, and resurrection. And so you are actively trying to put on this new life. You're living as this new creation, and you don't see this world the same way that you did before you came to meet Jesus. 
Now as you are walking through this world with your final destination in mind, as this guy did on his phone as he's driving toward that, towards that marriage, that's the exact picture that you get of the idea of the new heavens and the new earth whenever they come down to this world, is that there's a great marriage that's happening, that you see the body being married with soul for all eternity, that they can dwell perfectly with God in his presence for the rest of human history. That you get this idea of this opportunity that you get to live bodily with God and that all of your desires, all of your aches, all the struggles in this world are finally met and fully realized in this Jesus. And the way that you live in this world is in light of that vision. You are not persuaded by the idea and the thoughts of this world. The discipling that happens through our TVs and through the books and the social media that we take place, we say, I'm placing that to the side and I'm not gonna be persuaded that the bodily resurrection isn't possible or it's not even the thing that actually captures my imagination, but I'm setting that aside and I'm putting on the clothes of this new resurrection and it allows me to say no to sin. I don't settle for the sin of this world, but I am putting actively on this new resurrection. And so I say no to sin in light of the hope and the eternity that I have with Jesus. I live now with a sense of gratitude because my imagination and my wonder are captivated by this consummation. I'm no longer enthralled just by the things of this world, but I have set my gaze on the thing that is to come and it directs the way that I live. It has infiltrated my perception and even my emotions and the way that people experience me in this world. I have a sense of gratitude. And I also live with this sense of urgency. I see this hope that I have in the good news of Jesus that it doesn't stop with reconciliation, but I get to live with him for eternity. And I get to go share that with anybody and everybody that does not yet know this Jesus. It's the best experience. It's the best relationship. It is the hope that I base my life on. And it is not a burden for me to go share that good news with somebody. It's my joy. So the hope of the resurrection is our answer for how do we deal with our struggles with apathy, with no, not living with gratitude, not living with standards, settling for sin, not living with urgency, or sharing the good news with the hope the way that we live in contrast to that is that we live as a new creation, the hope of the resurrection, the already, but the not yet. We have a vision for where we're going, but we get to live with Jesus here and now, and we set aside the old things for the new things that are yet to come. You dress, not for where you are, but for where you are going and your life begins to align with that future reality. And it's all through the strength of the Spirit, the God who says, I'm gonna live with you here and now. You get to experience that new life in the present. I'm gonna bring it together in full when Jesus comes back for you, that you get your bodily resurrection just as Jesus did on that Easter Sunday, the first fruits. This is the hope and this is the new chart for how we live in this life. So look, let your imagination be taken over and consumed with this idea that you get to live bodily with God. 
Like, don't let it just be this thing that you maybe think on once a year whenever Easter rolls around again. Paul's mind is consumed with this vision. It's what gives him the strength and the vision for how he lives in the present. And it's to do the same thing for us. So man, like, dream about it. Think on it. Like, go draw pictures of it. Like, go write in your journal about it. Like, think about how this life doesn't match up to the one that you're going to experience with Jesus in the life to come and live in the reality that Jesus gives me the power through the strength of the Holy Spirit who lives in me to experience that in part now while I wait for it in full. You're captivated by splendor and wonder. Let's not be a people that lack imagination but live out of imagination. Let's pray.